When as we look at this last chapter today, chapter 13, Paul, even up to the end, continues to urge this church to respond to his ministry and to respond to his ministry so that they'll obey the truth that he shares and they will follow Christ. Really, even up to verse 11, Paul is giving instructions. There's a bunch of commands in verse 11. If you look at some of other Paul's letters at the end of the chapters, at the end of the book, he's sending various greetings from so-and-so and so-and-so. But here, he's urging them up to the very end to respond. Listen, be the church that God wants you to be. And I think there is uh, encouragement in this regard. I wanna, just want to say, talk about this now. I think this church did respond to Paul. Often we think about uh, the church in Corinth, and they have a very marred track record. This is not uh, a very pleasant church to be a part of. From 1 Corinthians and, chapter, and 2 Corinthians, of the, the dissensions, the rivalry, the immorality, the arguing and fighting back and forth. Uh, but yet, I think there is evidence of this, uh, that they responded to his ministry. We don't know for sure, but... Uh, Paul was on his way there in Acts chapter 20. We read of him staying in the region of Greece for three months. I think that was in Corinth. And I think that is when Paul wrote the book of Romans. If you remember the book of Romans, it's one of the most well-thought-out, logical, uh, well-argued books of the Bible. It's hard for people to think and reason well when they're constantly distracted with lots of chaos in their lives. I think this situation in Corinth resolved to such a place where he could settle down and focus and write Romans. Certainly he could, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do it regardless of that, but I think that's an evidence of that. In Romans chapter 15, we see of Paul writing about this offering in Romans 15, 26, and 27, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia. Corinth was in Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed that they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Here he says, the churches of Achaia, Corinth would be one of those, contributed to this offering. That's what chapters 8 and 9 were about, and some of the accusations, you're just trying to use this offering for, as a cover for yourself. But yet they came and they participated in this. And then also in Romans chapter 15, 28 and following, Paul writes about coming uh, at the end of verse 28, I shall go by way of you to Spain. Now, if they really didn't like Paul, how would they send him on? And the idea is send him on with resources to be able to go share the gospel in Spain. So if they really didn't like Paul, they're not going to be continuing to help him further the gospel in other places. So I think that's a further evidence of the resolution with this church here. But at this point of 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is saying, I'm about ready to visit you, verse 1, the third time. And he urges them to respond. He urges them to listen, to be the church that God wants them to be. From this, we see this truth. 
Uh, what type of church will you be? I want to ask some questions of this today. What type of church will you be? That's really where Paul is challenging them. I've shared the truth with you. It's up for you to respond to it. And up to the very end, he's urging them to be the type of church that responds to his ministry. And so in order for us to look at this, I want to ask several questions of this. First question is this. What kind of ministry will you require? A gentle one or a painful one? What type of ministry will you require? Paul's saying, I'm going to come. This will be the third time that I come and visit you. Verse 1. The first visit was his church planning visit. The second visit was that painful visit where things were not well. He did not stay long. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And now this is the third time. And as he says there in verse 2, I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. I won't spare you. If you're continuing in these patterns of sin, my ministry towards you is going to be direct, bold, confrontational. This is what he writes about again in verse 10. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness or harshness or severity, a bold confrontation according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Paul had the authority as an apostle to deal boldly and directly with them. And throughout this letter, he's trying to urge them by the truth and by the spirit. And he's saying, if you don't listen, if I come, my ministry will not be able gentle encouragement. You're doing well. You're responding. It's going to need to be painful for you, bold and direct towards you. And so he's saying, what type of ministry will you require? I'm going to come. I'm going to come visit with you. And how I am will determine how you respond to the truth that you have been told. He would not just go by hearsay, verse 1. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. So it could be through other witnesses or perhaps his visits themselves are acting as the witnesses against them. Uh, but he's saying, I'm going to discern where you're at. I'm going to figure out and know for sure and how you are acting, how you're living. If you're, you're responding to the truth or not, will determine my ministry among them. We think about planting a garden or perhaps planting a field. There's a big difference between hard ground and soft ground. You're going to plant a garden, and it's all packed hard ground. You're going to, unless you have a big tractor, you're going to have to go through a lot of work to get that ground broken up. And at first, you get it into clumps, and then try to get that into smaller, and, and so it's fine, and so you could push the, the seed down into the ground or spread it out and cover it up with the fine soil that is there. If the ground was hard, it would take a lot more effort to get it to the place where it would be able to receive seed. You couldn't just throw that seed out there and cause it to grow. Paul's saying, in a sense, my ministry is, am I going to find you with hard ground where you have rejected the truth that you've been told? And I'm going to have to go through a lot of effort and labor to try to urge you to respond to the truth. Or am I going to come and be able to keep teaching you the word of God and build you up in Christ by sharing more truth that you can grow by and be encouraged by. 
What type of soil will you be? How responsive will you be to the word of God? Will you deal with your sin before I come, if repenting of it, and want to follow the truth? We could think of it this way. Parents, if you have multiple children, you probably know that they responded differently to you. Uh, some of them, you give them the look, and they listen. They shape up, they, right? Uh, and then other children, you give them the look, and they're like, I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> this is what Paul's saying. Am I going to have to come? And can I just now give you the look, and you respond? Or am I going to have to come and give further discipline and instruction to you? How you're acting will determine what ministry you require. And God wants us to be those who are readily receiving the word, dealing with sin in our lives so that we uh, can benefit from a fruitful ministry of the teaching, of the gentle teaching of the word of God. Second question is this. Does your life reveal that Christ is in you? Does your life reveal that Christ is in you? What Paul was doing after defending his ministry, he was turning the tables and asking them questions. They were looking for a proof of his ministry that he was truly an apostle. And now he asks them, he says, well, what about you? Are you truly saved? Look at verse 5. He says, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified or you've failed the test. And so he wants them to think about their own lives and their own examine themselves. And he's asking this to a church who I think evidence in this letter, he, he thinks that they are saved. But he sees there's a value in this of, of making sure. Even as we heard in Allison's testimony this morning, how profitable that was for her in her life, saying, am I really saved? Let me look to the truths of the gospel and make sure. But think about this church. They were willing to follow false spiritual leaders. They were going and down, thinking about going down into immoral living. They were readily living in conflict with one another. And Paul asked them, are you really in the faith? Are you really saved? Let me encourage you with this to not quickly brush aside doubts about your salvation. We can go too far with this, but there's a place for us to really consider, am I really saved? Do I know that Christ is my Savior? And sometimes you may be thinking, well, I've, I've always gone to church. That's why I'm saved. Or maybe I, I've always been a Christian. Maybe I prayed a prayer when I was young. I went forward at a meeting. That's how I know I'm saved. Or I asked Jesus into my heart, and I just know that I'm saved. Some of those things can be good in their place, but we can't depend on our own actions. It's not what we do, but it's what Christ has done for us. And so our faith needs to not be in that, a prayer. Our faith needs to be in Jesus Christ who died for us. And so we need to not brush those doubts aside, but use them to come to the truth of the word of God, to the truths of the gospel, to say, is my dependence in myself and my religious experience, or is my dependence upon Jesus, the Son of God who died for me and rose again? If you're here today and you're not sure if you were truly saved, you lack assurance, I encourage you to talk to me, talk to others who are here. 
that you can know for sure, that we can look into the Bible, that you can know for sure if you are saved. Some people grow up in the church, they've lived, they've served in different roles in the church, and they come to a point in their life and saying, I was just going through the motions. I didn't really know Jesus as my Savior. Let not that be you. If there are doubts, come to the Word of God, come to the Gospel, seek encouragement and guidance from the Word of God. Paul asked them, are you in the faith? And then he asked them, is Jesus Christ in you? And I think that's an important uh, next step for certainly as we trust in Christ, Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And so he's not just saying, What's your, what do you say you believe about Jesus? He's saying, is Jesus in you? And is there evidences of that in your life? Think of a parallel passage would be Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, you say, well, I know God. Does God know you? Does he claim you as his child because of your faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross? When Christ is in someone through the Holy Spirit, their lives begin to change. And so he's challenging to saying, how are you, you say you believe, how is that what you say you believe shape and changing your life because Christ is in you? Are you responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Are you wanting to obey God? Do you love the truth and want to hear it? Do you love to hear about Jesus who died for you and rose again? Are you finding comfort in the promises of God in his word? Is Christ in you? He asked them. Now, Paul, I think, is convinced that they really are saved. Some may be that weren't, and we're just playing along. But throughout this letter, I think there's evidence of this. But he's asking them to think for a purpose. How did they hear the gospel? Was it not through the ministry of Paul? What were they asking Paul? Show us that you're an apostle. He says, Well, how did you get saved? I shared the gospel with you, and you responded and you believed. Your faith in Christ is evidence that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And how did I conduct my ministry after the pattern of Jesus? Jesus himself, he's not weak, as he says there in verse 3, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. Christ saves those who come to him. He is mighty, but yet Jesus Christ conducted his life and his ministry through weakness. And the, the extreme example of that is his crucifixion. And, and there's a pattern here, weakness, glory, weakness, power, weakness, power. And Christ was crucified in weakness. He was, lives by the power of God, verse 4. We also are weak in him, and we can conduct ourselves, we live in him by the power of God towards you. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm patterned my ministry after the character of Christ. So why are you finding fault with my ministry? Why are you finding fault with me as an apostle? How did you even come to faith in Christ yourselves? This calls to mind what Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll pick up in verse 23. 
but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To those, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh, no person should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. This is the great glorious truths of the gospel, Christ in weakness died for us so that we could be saved, we could be in him so that we glorify God with our lives. So what about you and your life? First of all, what does your life reveal? Does it reveal that you know Christ as your savior, that he is in you? And do you value the ministry of weakness that leads to the strength and glory of God? It should cause you to appreciate gospel ministers who minister in weakness the message of the cross of Christ. What type of church will you be? Third question, will you obey God by the resources he provides? Through their testimony, Paul, verse 6 I know, trust that you know that we are not disqualified, that we have not failed the test, that we are true apostles. What does he do as an apostle? Verse 7, he prays for them. Prays that they would do no evil, uh, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may be seem disqualified. Saying, so you may call us weak, you may think nothing of us, but our heart, our desire is that you do what is right. In fact, we're glad, verse 9, that we are weak so that you may become strong. I think strong spiritually. You may be also, as he says, this also we pray, that you may be made complete. The word complete is restored, that you may be restored. What? To right relationship with God. Paul's saying, I want to minister in weakness. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. It's God's working in you. We're going ministering according to the truth, verse 8. But our desire is that you be restored to a right relationship with God and you walk in obedience to him. Verse 11. Finally, my brethren. And then he gives five commands to them. Right up to the very end, he's giving them commands. And these all relate to some of the turmoil, some of the issues in the church in Corinth. Farewell. Uh, can be also translated rejoice, and I think that's how it should be understood here. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. Become complete, restored, restored to the right purpose of, of walking with God, living for God. Be comforted. Comfort is a theme of this book. Find your comfort in God and the resources he provides. 
Be like-minded. Be at peace. Remember what Paul said in chapter 12, verse 20? I'm afraid that if I come to you, I'm going to find there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whispering, whisperings, conceits, turmoil. I'm going to find you in utter chaos in your relationships. You're not getting along. You're fighting with one another. And so as one of the last instructions, several last instructions, he says, be at peace, be of one mind. Remember that Christ is central. Stop fighting with one another. Just tell them, I don't know where to talk about this, but greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, it is a greeting. Uh, as we see that there, greet one another. It is a holy kiss, so it's nothing related to romance in any way. Uh, this was a form of greeting in the early church. Several of Paul's letters talk about this, so he's giving them this command. I think for us today, uh, this is, would be hard to, to carry out in our highly sexualized culture, but rather what he's emphasizing, I think, in this, there's a warmth, there's a, a readily acceptance of greeting one another. It often takes place through a handshake or a warm smile or sometimes a hug uh, where we're glad that we're together because of Christ. So he's saying uh, keep Christ central there in your relationships. Deal with one another. Find, turn to God. But I want to bring out this here. So he's giving them, them these commands. But what does he say at the end of verse 11? And the God of love and peace will be with you. This is what he's emphasized throughout the book. God gives commands, he gives instructions in his word, but God always equips to be able to obey what he says. God of love, the God of peace. How will you know God's peace in your life? Because of the God of peace. How will you be able to love others? Because of the God of love. And it's a benediction, a closing prayer in verse 14. But he's directing them to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. They're pointing to them to the grace, love, and fellowship that comes from the triune God. God is fully able. He's there. He's given you everything you need to be able to obey his commands. So he's saying, what type of church will you be? You need to obey the truth that you've been taught, but remember you obey by the strength that God gives. Here's that hope-fueled help for them. We can look at verse 14. It teaches us more about the truth of the Trinity. Three persons, all called God, worthy of our worship. But yet, as Paul is teaching them here, he's pointing them to the resources that God gives to them. Will you obey? But will you obey by the resources that God gives? provides. I talked earlier about how this church, I think, did respond to Paul's ministry. Right now, they didn't have a very good reputation before Paul. Churches can develop reputations, sometimes for good things like missions-minded church or through their thoughtful teaching of the Word of God, Sometimes it's uh, churches are known for lots of activity or sometimes they're known for their fighting or for immorality or other such sins. Like it or not, churches can develop a reputation for things. 
I want to challenge us in this. Wouldn't it be great if we were known for being a church that obeys Jesus Christ? That that is what we're striving to do, and more than just talking about it, that we're really working to do that. That that would be true of us, relying upon his grace and his power. And really, that choice is up to you. I say you individually, and I say you corporately. As you have been taught the truth, as you know about Jesus, the headship of Jesus Christ, and what he wants for the church, how we should conduct our ministry, how we should live our lives, how we should treat one another, the choice is up to you. I want to urge you, even as Paul does up to the end, to be the church that God wants you to be, that you will, by God's grace and strength, walk in obedience to him. Because the type of church we are will depend upon our obedience to Christ through his word, by his power. We want to live lives that are for the honor and glory of God. I do think we, we really seek to do this. I want to challenge you because we can't rest on the past, the fact that, well, maybe 50 years ago, we obeyed Christ. Or 10 years ago, we obeyed Christ. Or one year ago, we obeyed Christ. We can't rest in that. As great as a testimony as that may be, we have a choice today. Will we obey Christ? With what is before us, what we know from his word, will we obey his word?